with a clap offering. Let's receive the man of God, Reverend Dr. Mensah Otame. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Glory be to God, glory be to God. Please be seated in God's presence. It's always a great joy to be here. And I know that we are coming to church tomorrow morning. So I'll try not to stay for too long. I'll go straight into the message and hopefully uh, close uh, early enough for you to go home. Yesterday, I started teaching on tithes, offerings, and first fruits. And um, different churches have their own approach to uh, how they raise money. But what I'm doing is laying the biblical foundation. The practice and application may differ from church to church, but the foundation must always be the same. Christ is the foundation. And yesterday we started, I laid down the first principles. We went to the first offering that was recorded in the Bible. And the first accepted offering was Abel's offering. We analyzed Abel's offering and positioned it as a first fruit offering. That he gave the first of what he had and their fat. Then uh, we looked at Noah's offering where he also gave the first of everything that came out from the ark unto God. So you'll see a pattern that the first is always important in, the, in, in giving. Uh, we also looked at the fact that Noah gave of a very scarce resource and took out of scarcity to give to God and established a covenant between humanity and God. Then we looked at the third offering which was Abraham's offering and uh, Abraham's offering to Melchizedek. And then after that, we looked at the fourth offering, which is also Abraham's second offering. That is the offering that Abraham made when God demanded uh, that he brings an offering. And then uh, I mentioned the third one, which is uh, Isaac being offered. In all of these practices of offering, different foundations are being laid. And then uh, from Isaac uh, and Abraham, I moved to the law. And we looked at how God established the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, and then demanded that the Levites receive the offerings of the people. I showed you that the offerings of the people were a lot. It wasn't just one kind. And the tithe is one of them. It's not the only one, it's one of them. Uh, but there are several offerings that the children of Israel gave. I mentioned that if you look at the life of the Israelites, it's almost as if they lived to give. They, they just work and work and they, and they give to God. That's all they were doing. And, um, and God said that if they honored him, they would be the greatest nation on earth. If you look at Israel, even in its falling state, it is still the most influential nation on our planet today. Their nation is very tiny, but they have produced the highest amount of scientists, 
the highest amount of musicians in every field. The Jews have produced the highest amount. They have the highest amount of winners of Nobel Prize all over the world. Uh, if you look at the proportion, it doesn't work logically that a nation that is so tiny will produce such a proportion of greatness in the world. In terms of size and proportion, it doesn't seem to match. But there is something about them that we can learn when it comes to giving. Now, I ended with the law, and I said that the law was for Israel. Now, we are in the New Testament, so we have to find out what the New Testament teaches about our offerings, but I'm going to zone in on the tithe because sometimes it's a problematic one, and people uh, wonder whether Christians should give tithe. Uh, some people think that, uh, that we are under grace, and so we shouldn't give tithe. Um, I wish I had chance to teach on, on grace. Maybe I will do that uh, tomorrow. I'm not sure. Uh, but one of the things you have to understand is grace is more severe than the law. You see, people have a feeling that grace lowers the standard. Grace makes it easy. It means uh, if you were now serving God at level five, grace says do it at level one because now grace has made everything easy. No, no. Grace makes everything harder. Yeah. Grace makes it harder. Jesus himself said it. I'm not saying it. Jesus said, the law, you have heard it said, under the law, you shall not commit adultery. That's law. But I, grace, I say to you, if you look at a woman and lust after her, you have committed adultery. Now, wait a minute. Law and grace, which is more severe? So anybody who makes you feel as if because we are under grace, the levels have reduced, hasn't read his Bible, and suddenly hasn't studied his New Testament. Grace demands more from us than the law. And I'm going to show that to you very soon. So, today we will look at Jesus and the early church in relation to tithing and giving. And uh, today's teaching will be a bit technical, but I need to do that for you to have the facts as they are. The New Testament opens with Jesus. He's the foundation of our Christian faith. And the way Jesus viewed anything that happened before him is very important in determining whether we should practice some things that were under the law or not practice it. So when Jesus looks at something that happened under the law and says, no, we don't do that again, then we don't do that again. If Jesus says we do it, then we do it. Because Jesus is the filter of the law and determines which part of the law is applicable to us and in what context. 
So we will look at Jesus in the light of our message, tithes, offerings, and first fruits. And we will look again at the first offering mentioned in the New Testament. The first offering we looked at in the Old Testament, Abel. What is the first mention of an offering in the New Testament? Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Verses 21 to 24. This is after Jesus had been born. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of hair purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, to offer him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This is the first mentioned offering in the New Testament. And I have mentioned the importance of first occurrences in our study of the scripture. There are two offerings that are made in this passage. The first offering is the offering of the parents of Jesus to God. So Jesus is the first offering the New Testament himself and why did they offer him to God because he was a firstborn he was what is called a first fruit offering similar to the first fruit offering of Abel in Abel's case it was an animal or animals that were giving in this case a person Jesus Christ himself is the offering, a first fruit offering unto God. Now, Jesus is brought to Jerusalem and is presented. Exodus chapter 13, verse 1 and 2 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. So, because Jesus was the firstborn, he had to be offered to God. That's the first mentioned offering in the New Testament. But in that same passage, a second offering is also mentioned. The offering for Mary, the mother of Jesus. And in this offering, it is offered for the purification of Mary for giving birth to Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things you will find in the law is that there are a lot of demands for purification under the law. Now, Mary is under the law. Jesus was born under the law. So what they are doing now is still under the law. It's not under grace. It's under the law. Uh, the reason why 
uh, a lot of purification was needed was if you read the law, you realize that anytime anything leaves a human being, any life-bearing substance leaves a human being, the human being is considered not whole. So if blood leaves him, it means he's incomplete. If water leaves him, he's incomplete. So anytime somebody releases any form of fluid out of him, it is considered that life has left him, and because of that, he is not whole. He has to stay in a system to be made whole, to be replenished, and in that process, he has to make a sacrifice. So that is what happens. Mary delivers Jesus. Life has gone out of her. Now she comes to give her offering to say that after waiting, she is complete. That is the second offering. It's an offering of purification. According to the law, she should have produced a lamb. But if you were poor, you produce turtle dove. Since Joseph and Mary did not produce a lamb, we can safely conclude that they were a poor couple. It's not sin to be poor. Jesus was born to poor parents. So they offered turtle doves. So the first offering in the New Testament is that Jesus himself is offered. Second, Mary offers a purification uh, offering. Third offering in the New Testament, very significant, very, very important. Because if you look at it, there is a sequence in which the first, second, third offerings in the Old Testament is mirrored in the first, second, third offerings in the New Testament. The third offering in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2, from verse 1 and 2. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Verse 10. Now when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, fell down and worshipped him. And, they had, and when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is the third record of an offering in the New Testament. The first one is a first fruit offering. The second one is a purification offering to thank God for deliverance. Just like the offering of Noah to thank God for deliverance from the flood. The third offering, as you remember in the Old Testament, was to the king priest, Melchizedek. The third offering in the New Testament is to where is he who has been born king? Of the Jews. There is a parallel going on. Nothing in the scripture is put there for decoration. Nothing in the scripture is for decoration. Everything is serving a purpose. God speaks in doubles. He doesn't just speak once. He speaks twice. He confirms his word. And when you look through the scripture, you see God speaks in doubles. So this offering is a kingly and priestly offering, just like the offering to Melchizedek. It is a kingly and priestly offering. The wise men saw Jesus as king and priest. 
Now, why do they, why do I say they saw him as king and priest? Uh, based on the gifts they gave to him. The Bible says when they saw him, they worshipped him and they, off, they opened their treasures. In the Greek, the word that is translated treasures is thesaros. Thesaros means storehouse or treasure house. So the wise men, we are not told how many wise men they were. You know, we sing, we three kings of Oriental. Well, there's no record that there were three. It says wise men from the east. Bearing gifts, we travel so And then, you know, so we, we, we have the feeling that when these men came, one of them is holding gold and maybe a small gold and puts it down and say, Jesus has it. And then one has mare and small mare and then one has frankincense, small frankincense. But that is not what the scripture says. The Bible says they opened their thesaros. They are storehouses. Now, in the culture they lived in, that storehouse is like a treasure box. Have you seen those treasure boxes that people put treasure in? So, when they came and they opened, they didn't open, take it from their pocket or from their wallet. They took that gold from a treasure house, from a thesaros. So, it wasn't one piece of gold. It was a lot of gold poured it out and gave it to Jesus, the baby who has been born. Treasures of gold. What does the gold represent? King. They say, we know who you are. We've come to a king. And we have to give you an offering that represents your office. A king deserves a king's offering. Gold. Then they offered frankincense and myrrh. What does frankincense and myrrh stand for? If you read your Old Testament well, you would know that they, when they went into the temple of God, they burned incense. Myrrh and frankincense were part of the properties that were used in the sacrifices under the Old Testament. It's a priestly offering. So they brought him an offering to say that you are a king and you are a priest. The same offering as Abraham gave to Melchizedek as a king and priest. Because there is a link between Melchizedek and Jesus, which we are going to find out very soon. So they gave gifts to him. They honored his office. So the principle is continuing that the offering that is given to God must be the first, the best, and it must fit his office, the value you place on him. So now we go to Jesus Christ himself and what he said about tithe. Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, there are, it is what I call the chapter of woes. There are eight woes or condemnation. Jesus is in, in a high level at this time when he's preaching. And when he's preaching, he says, Woe unto you, Pharisees, hypocrites! And then he will blast them. Woe unto you and blast them. Woe unto you, blast them, blast them, blast them. So this, if you are in Matthew chapter 23, you are not in a good shape. 
Because Matthew chapter 23 is not a good place to be at all. You want to be in chapter 5 or some other chapter. But 23 or chapter 11. Or, but 23 is not good. If you come and pass out in front of Matthew 23, Jesus will say, whoa! And when he says whoa to you, he's, he's, he's not encouraging you. So Jesus is speaking all these woes. And he is condemning all kinds of things that are going wrong with the religious system of his time. And then in verse 23, he pronounces a major woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. I'm trying to imitate his voice. Justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Wow. If you were in that service, you would say, whoa, what's happening here? The man is in a different spirit but it's important to listen to what Jesus is saying remember he's condemning something he's not encouraging he's condemning he's telling us something which is wrong and so he says to the scribes and Pharisees you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin in other words these people were very meticulous tithers Pharisees and scribes, very meticulous. Cumin is like pepper, salt, and other maybe some other spices. He says they tight even up to salt. Some of you only tight your money. Now these guys were tightening their salt and their pepper. <laughs> Believe you me, that's a powerful tither. Jesus says they tithe up to that level. They finish the big one and then they go even to that. So if you come and give a Pharisee 10 pepper, you count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. I eat 9. 1, 10 belongs to God. <laughs> you give him a, a box, uh, you know, a olonka or something of salt. You spread it and start counting. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten. One, two, three, four, five, six. And, and all the ten, he puts it aside. This is God's. Man, that's powerful. Don't you think so? I mean, and Jesus saying, you do all of that. You go to those details. But the war is not the tithe. The war is, whilst you go into all the details in measuring tithe, you, 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 are not, you have no faith. There's no mercy. There's no justice. Woe unto you. And then he makes a commentary to clarify the woe. He says, these you ought to have done. You should have done the mercy and justice and faith without leaving the others undone. In other words, continue tithing your cumin and your, and your anise. But in addition to it, be merciful, have faith, and justice.
Now, if Jesus was about to say, don't tithe, this is a good chance for him to say it. Don't you think so? Jesus is not shy. You see, when, when Jesus came, there was one thing he wanted to change, the Sabbath and its meaning. So when you look at Jesus, Jesus intentionally healed on the Sabbath. Intentionally. He would go, go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Nobody must work. And Jesus would show up. And everybody's watching him. Is he going to work? Is he going to do a miracle? Then he would do a miracle. And everybody would condemn him. And then he would explain. The Sabbath is made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. Eventually he, he told them, I am the Sabbath. Sabbath is not a day. It's a man. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you your Sabbath. So, Jesus has no problem confronting something he must confront. And at this war level, at this war level, he's not sparing anything. He could have said, woe unto you, hypocrites, Pharisees, you tight coming, and so and so. That is wrong. He could have said that. But he says, do it. But add more. So Jesus did not condemn tithing under the law in his time. He didn't condemn it. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14. Jesus is speaking. He says, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. I like how the Bible says he prayed with himself, not to God. He's praying. <laughs> you know, I see a lot of people now, they pray with themselves, not to God. So they go to a room, they, they start, you know, praying and speaking in tongues just to impress themselves. And there's some people... Did you, did you hear my tongues? Did you hear? Did, it, it, was it heavy? You are praying to yourself. Pray with yourself. So Jesus says, these guys are praying with themselves. So the Pharisee stood and thus prayed with himself. <laughs> God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this task collector. What kind of prayer meeting is that? Can you imagine you go to church, somebody's praying, and you say, God, thank you that I'm a good man. I'm not like that sister. What kind of prayer meeting is that? But this guy is continuing praying. And in order to show how good he is, he says, I fast twice a week. <laughs> Watch me, Lord, I fast twice a week. I give tithe of all that I possess. And the task collector standing afar off will not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't impress God with your tithe. 
don't come and say, God, look at my tight envelope. I've been tight So based on that, answer my prayer. He doesn't answer your prayer because you tithed. He answers your prayer because of his grace and of his mercy. We don't buy God's favor. So he says, don't do that. That's what he's teaching. But he didn't say that a tithing was wrong, but he's correcting attitudes about tithing. So in all these, note, Jesus did not condemn it. And this is still under the law, still not under grace. But Jesus says something very interesting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 20. And he says, and I just will, will read the verse 20. You can read the verse 17 and the rest, but I'll read the verse 20. Verse 20, he says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is demanding more from us than what the law demands from us. He says, if you want to see my kingdom, you have to do better than the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees are tithing cumin and anise. And he says, your righteousness must exceed them if you are mine. If you want to see my kingdom, if you want to see my, how my system works, you don't reduce the standard, you are actually upping the standard. So when Jesus talked about that, and that is why in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. I say to you, if you hate your brother, you are a murderer. Now, let's face it. Between you shall not murder, and if you hate your brother, you have murdered. Which one is severe? Then he says, the adultery one. It's in that same light that he says, your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees. Now, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, the system I brought in will not make the standards lower. Actually, I'm going to raise the standard. I'm not going to demand less from you. I'm going to demand more from you. You cannot say, well, under the law, we can't commit adultery, but grace will make us commit adultery. What kind of grace are you talking about? Is it the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ or your own grace? If it is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't lower the standard. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will demand more from us. And we will see it in giving. That whereas the law, you are dealing with 10%. In Jesus, we are going beyond that. We'll go beyond 10%. Mark chapter, chapter 10. Don't get worried. Don't get worried. Those of you who say, we are under the New Testament. Yeah, yeah, we are under the New Testament. Yeah. 
So let's see what the New Testament says. All right. Now, most of you, after you hear what the New Testament says, will say, I need to be under the law. The law is better. I'm running. I'm going back to the law. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the grace is more severe, believe you me. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Now, as he was going out <clears throat> on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. He answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Wow! Super spiritual, brother. Verse 21. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. In other words, Jesus had compassion on him. Jesus said, you don't know what is going to hit you right now. The next thing I'm going to say will hit you very bad. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give it to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven. Come, take up your cross and follow me. But the man was very sad at this word and went away very sorrowful, for he had great possession. <laughs> the test of your spiritual commitment is in your giving. That's what Jesus is saying. That's an act, I commit adultery. I've passed this. I've passed that. I've passed that. I've passed that. Jesus said, let me use the final test. How much are you ready to give? And when Jesus put that test out, the man went back home. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is. You can say, I love you, God. I love you, Jesus. And pray hard at a prayer meeting. But if you don't give, you don't love him. The measure of your love for Christ, the highest measure is in your giving. And Jesus says to the man, give not 10%. He didn't say go and sell everything you have and give 10% and keep the 90 and reinvest. Go and sell 100%. Give 100%. There's no 10% business with Jesus. It's 100. Mark chapter 10. After this guy had gone, very sad. Then Peter, from verse 28, mastered some boldness. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So that was standard procedure. If you're following Jesus, you leave everything, 100%. We have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is saying if you give up for me you will not be poor. So 
that, that giving is not a means for impoverishing people, but for prospering people. Jesus says, if you give up one house, you're going to have a hundredfold. If you give up brothers, you're going to have more brothers. The only thing you will not have more of is wife. That's the only one that is eliminated. You get land, you have brothers, you have mothers, you have fathers, you have houses, no wife. So you can say, Lord Jesus, you know, now I want to serve you. I give up my wife, Lord. I give up my wife for you, Lord Jesus. I'm sacrificing her. No wife back. Because he knows you. Jesus knows all of you. He knows if he doesn't do that, some of you will come to church and donate your wife. Did you hear the story about a man who went to church and the pastor says that everybody come to church with your burdens. Tomorrow night, come to church with your burdens to the altar and Jesus will answer and lift your burden. This man come to church carrying his wife. <laughs> That's my burden, Lord Jesus. There is no replacement. It's your cross. You have to bear it. Oh, yeah. When you were saying I do, you were not deaf and dumb. <laughs> so, but what, what do you learn? That under the New Testament, first, Jesus does not say tithing is wrong. But Jesus introduces a new standard. It's not 10%, it's 100%. <laughs> So should we go back to Moses or stay with Jesus? <laughs> if you look at the giving that Jesus commended, Jesus goes to church. He's sitting by the offering bowl. It's a good place to sit. Jesus is at the offering bowl, and he's seen how people are giving. And the rich man, men came, pour out their treasure, pour, and he sees a poor widow. And she comes, and the Bible says she throws in two mites. And Jesus taps his disciples and says, You see what just happened? That woman who just gave the two mites, she's giving all. Not 10%, all that she had. And she's giving more than everybody else. So, what your giving represents to you is more important than the number on the paper. She's giving all. Now, Jesus knows the woman is poor. And she's a poor widow. Up to today, we've called the widow's might. Now, you would have thought that Jesus would have said, hey, 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 lady, come and collect your money back. You've given all. Just take it back. Well, Jesus knows two mites, whether it is given or kept, it's still two mites. It won't help her. But Jesus knew the only way she's going to have a hundredfold 
and she's going to prosper and break the back of poverty. As painful as it appeared, is for her to do what she has just done. So if you love the poor, you will not deny them from giving. That's basically what Jesus is saying. Now, does it mean we should go and defraud people? He's not defrauding anybody. Jesus is establishing a very important principle. He says, if you give up these things for my sake, you receive a hundredfold now in this life and in the world to come eternal life. He sees the woman give. He himself testifies. This woman is probably going to go home not having anything to eat, but the money must still remain where it is because this is God's way of turning around her situation and turning around her captivity. It is like a doctor who must perform surgery. But he knows that is the only way to save this life. Is it painful? Yes. Is it hard? Yes. Is it easy to watch a poor person give? No. It's not easy. To, I mean, sometimes as a pastor when we're giving, and you see somebody you know is poor. You know, you don't, some, there are people you know them, they don't have to tell you. Poverty has a way of just uh, <laughs> making its presence known. Now, so you, you, you just look at the person, and you say, your heart, your heart, your heart, your heart is hurting because you say, oh God, I mean, but you also know that's the only way I know. That's the only way. I mean, I don't know any other way except to go back to Jesus and says, if you do that for my sake and the gospels in this life, you will receive a hundredfold. Now, are there things we can do to help the poor? Yes, there are many things we can help the poor. But stopping them from giving is not one of them. I believe the church should be compassionate, the church should be just, the church should help those who are needy in many ways, but you should not stop them from giving. I've talked to many people in my church, many, many people, and they talked to me about times when they had to come to church and give an offering and go back walking and then tell what God has done in their lives. So many people at the lowest point of their lives have found themselves being lifted by God's power out of poverty. Don't deny the poor person his or her blessing. This is the words of Jesus. It's not the words of Mesotabu. The other time Jesus was sitting at home a woman comes, takes a very expensive bottle of ointment. Now, you know, when we read the Bible in our culture, sometimes we don't fully appreciate what it means. Because many times when we use perfume, it is like excessive. It's, you know, you have a lot of money, you buy a bottle of perfume. But that which she had in that alabaster box was 
an heirloom. When you say something is an heirloom, it's been passed on from generation to generation. It's a treasure that is stored. It's an investment. Most likely, her mother gave it to her. And most likely, her grandmother gave it to the mother. And said, this is all that I have, this treasure. When one day, life is very hard and you don't know what to do, sell it and survive. And everyone makes sure they don't sell it. They hold it. They hold it. They hold it. They hold it. Because it's very expensive. And this woman at one point in her life, this is the treasure for emergency. She goes and takes that bottle. And she breaks it. When you break it, you can't unbreak it. And she pours out 100% at the feet of Jesus. And the aroma fills the place and everybody says, what a waste. Why? Because they understand what has just happened. A family's treasure has just been poured. Wages for emergency have just been spilled. They say, oh, wow, if Jesus was a real man of God, he wouldn't allow this to happen. That's what they said. If Jesus is a real man of God. It was that day that Judas decided to betray. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's what the Bible said. That day, that's one week before the death of Jesus. One week before. That day, Jesus, Judas said, hmm. I can't go on like this because I'm the treasurer. This thing should have been sold. The money should have come to me. Then I will account for it. Because the Bible says he's been chopping the money. Judas decided, no, no way. They have to, I have to, no, 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 no way. Even Peter was saying, yeah, I know he's the son of God, but this. And Jesus says to them, take it easy. Everybody leave her. And actually, the way Jesus put it, he rebuked them and said, it's good. What she had done for me is good. He said, but it's a waste of money. He said, it's good. Yeah, but we could have used it to solve other problems. It's good. I'm saying I like it. <laughs> now, if you were a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, and you saw that it would be a conflict to your faith. How can humble Jesus saying, it's good for one year's perfume to be poured on me, for a family's life inheritance to be wasted, so to speak, and then Jesus said the most unusual thing. The poor you always have. In other words, he says this will not solve the poverty problem of the world. <laughs> the poor you always have with you. In other words, after you've done this, you go and help the poor. You, <laughs> this doesn't exempt you from serving the poor. There is enough poverty around the world for you to go and help them. 
Have you noticed that people who fight against giving in the church don't give? They don't give. Because they want a cheap way to keep their money. That's all. Because if you're going to go by Jesus, let's say tithe is Old Testament, and I will come to it later. It's the Old Testament, and it's gone. We don't have to tithe, fine. Then give 100%. That is it. Do the 100%. Say, no, 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 no. You just give us your lead. And have you noticed how people always lead less? <laughs> they are never led more. They are always led. The leading goes lower and lower. And lower. Please, you are a hypocrite. Just accept you are a hypocrite. You are trying to find a nice way to exempt yourself from doing what God says. Because if you truly love the Lord, you truly love the Lord. The proof was in the giving. True. Now, that is not to exempt any pastor who misbehaves and misappropriates money. But the fact that somebody is doing the wrong thing does not mean the principle should be denied. The principle is always the principle. Let's look at the New Testament. I hope we can do this quickly. Now, even when I say quickly, I don't think I know what quickly is. So now, we've seen Jesus. We've seen his approach to giving, and we've seen his approach specifically to tithing. All right. Acts chapter 4. This is the first giving of the New Testament church. And please note, I've shown you the first giving in the Old Testament, the first giving in the Gospels, and now the early church and the first giving. Something very interesting happened. Acts chapter 4, chapter verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they all had things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each one as anyone had need. And Joseph, who had also been named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the first exhaustive record. In chapter 2, there is a mention but this one keeps the record of what happened and who did what. So chapter 4 is actually an expansion on chapter 2. In this passage, we look at some important factors about the 
church, early church. First, we look at the spirit of the church. The Bible says they had one heart and one soul. One heart and one soul. They didn't consider what they had as theirs, and they had all things common. That's how the church was. So people who had money didn't consider that the money was theirs. People who had houses didn't consider it was theirs. They believed that everything they had belonged to the Lord and by extension belonged to the church. So that was the spirit. They didn't have an individualistic, self-possessing spirit. Then the second thing we look at is their stewardship of their resources. They sold their properties and they surrendered their wealth. They laid it at the apostles' feet. In the midst of all that is happening in this revival of generosity and giving, one name is mentioned. One name. And when things like this happen in the Bible, it means God wants to bring your attention to something. So everybody is giving. And then... God's camera zeroes in on one man. He's called Barnabas. Son of encouragement. But it's not just his name that is of peculiar attention, but the Bible adds a note that he's a Levite. Barnabas is a Levite. According to the law, he is from the priestly tribe. In the Old Testament, the Levites did not have land, but Barnabas, a Levite who is not supposed to have land, has land. He's a property owner. So it shows you that this is a Levite who was not given land by God, but through industry and work has acquired property. So he didn't have inheritance, he's now had inheritance. And he's not the only Levite who had property. Jeremiah was a Levite and a, a priest and had property. Barnabas is a selfless owner, he's a giver, but what makes everything significant here is that Barnabas sells his property, takes the money. Under the law, he should be the one receiving the offering. Because he's a Levite. So everybody gives and they, they sell and they should have gone to the Levite. Barnabas and say, you are the Levite. You are the right person appointed by the law. You give it. But Barnabas, a Levite, sells his property, and he comes and lays his offering at the apostles' feet. The apostles are not Levites. By what authority then do they receive an offering because they are not Levites? The one who is supposed to have the authority to receive the offering is now submitting authority to the apostolic order. What is the significance? The significance of this is that in this we see that the Levitical system, the Levitical order submitted to the priesthood of Christ. 
The calling of a bloodline shifted to the calling by grace. The Old Testament receiver of offerings transferred to the New Testament office set by Christ. Something has happened. Levites are not receiving the offering. The apostles are. By what authority? How come a Levite is now submitting to a non-Levite? It doesn't make sense. But it makes perfect sense. Because something happened when Jesus died and rose again and went to heaven and sat at the Father's right hand. You remember that gentleman we encountered earlier with Abraham called Melchizedek, a very, very mysterious entity in the Bible. And I have a lot to say, but I can't say everything about Melchizedek, but he's a very interesting character. He appears and disappears. And it almost seems as if he had only one duty. Comes to be described, bless Abraham, receive tithes from Abraham, and that's it. We don't hear of him again. We'll find him. Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. From verse 1. For this Melchizedek, hey, finally we found Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Did you follow that? This Melchizedek, without father, without mother, beginning, no end, neither, but made like the son of God. Melchizedek is what is called a Christophany. A Christophany. A Christophany is when Christ, pre his incarnation through the Virgin Mary, appeared in different forms in the Old Testament. I get excited when I get to this zone, you know, because. Now, but what, what Hebrews is telling us that this Melchizedek who shows up and we don't see again, you would think he disappeared. But Hebrews is saying he continues to be a priest. So whilst the Levites were priests, he was still continuing to be priest. And there were people who were priests in his system. That would take me to a different world. Let me stay. Let me stay. Help me, Lord. Verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, 
have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithe from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of Abraham, of his father, when Melchizedek met him. It says Levi, who had not been born, because Levi is a great-grandson of Abraham. Abraham gave birth to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to uh, Levi and, the, and his the Bible says when Abraham was paying the tithe, the 10% to Melchizedek, Levi was also tithing to Melchizedek because Levi was in him. So Abraham is tithing on behalf of his generations to Melchizedek. So he's saying right in the Old Testament, the Levitical order was already tithing to the Melchizedek order. Because the Melchizedek order is higher than the Levitical order. Are you following what I'm teaching? Alright. Now this is very important. So there are two types of tithing going on. One to the Levitical order, one to the Melchizedek order. The one to the Mel uh, Levite order goes on through the Old Testament through the law. The one through the Melchizedek order starts from Abraham and doesn't end. So Melchizedek is still receiving tithe. But don't worry, we'll, we'll clear all that up. Even Levi who receives tithes pay tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And it says that the one who had the promises, Abraham, tithed to somebody else. Not to Levi, but to Melchizedek. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For as many of you, to 29, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If Abraham's seed and the heir of the promise tithe to Melchizedek, then Abraham's seed and heirs of the promise now continue to tithe to Melchizedek. So if we are Abraham's seed, where is Melchizedek? Where is he now? Brother Melchi, where are you? So let's push further in Hebrews chapter 7 from verse 11. Hebrews 7 from verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek? And not be called according to the order of Aaron. 
is so heavily loaded, I don't have time to unpack all of it. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things were spoken belongs to another tribe of which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. As yet, and it is yet far more evident in the likeness, if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testified, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So many words, let me break it down. The Bible says Jesus is a high priest. That's all Christians accept. Jesus is our high priest. The writer of Hebrews is saying, how can Jesus be our high priest? Because he's not a Levite. But he's our high priest. He's not a Levite. He's from the tribe of Judah. So how can Jesus, who is from the tribe of Judah, become a priest? And the writer says the only way Jesus becomes a priest outside of the Levitical order is to become a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Because the order of Melchizedek is not based on which family you belong to or who gave birth to you. It is based on God's grace and God's calling. So Jesus is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Watch this. If Jesus is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, then it means that those who serve him cannot be functioning in the Levitical order. So, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which God erected and not man. Now, what Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is our high priest. But he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. If he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, it means he can still receive tithe after the order of Melchizedek. Not the order of Aaron, but the order of Melchizedek, he can still receive. But Jesus is in heaven. He's resurrected, he's died, he's resurrected. He has brought a new system, a new priesthood, a new order, grace and so on and he has established a new system but he's in heaven so who is going to do his job execute his agenda here on earth Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7 to 12 but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended to the lower parts of the earth. He who ascended is also the one who descended 
who, who, who descended is the, also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself, the high priest Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now what the passage is saying is that when Jesus becomes a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, he sits in heaven. But as he was ascending, because his work must continue to be done, he released grace upon the earth, upon some people that are called apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and pastors, what we call the fivefold ministry, so that they can do on earth what he wants to be done in heaven. So the people whom God calls, who become pastors or apostles or whatever title we give them, ministers, which order are they operating under? It's not the order of Levite. Because I am not a Levite. Peter was not a Levite. Paul was not a Levite. None of the apostles was a Levite. Well, we don't know whether Matthew was. It's not too sure. Could be. But the apostles were not Levites. Were well, some from Benjamin, some from Reuben, some from other tribes. Some I don't think I think they didn't even know which tribe they belonged to. But they were all called of God. So much so that their office was so magnified that the Levitical Barnabas comes to church and recognizes the order has changed. I'm a Levite, but I am now under the order of those who operate under Christ, the order of Melchizedek. And he brings the offering and submits it there. On what basis then am I a pastor? I'm a fanti. From Elimina. Of the Anona clan. Of which nothing is written about priesthood. But here am I, called of God. On what basis could I be called? The same basis on which the man of Judah was called. The order of Melchizedek. Where God raises men and women, not according to tribe and blood and genealogy, but only by grace and grace alone. Now those whom God calls, they still have the power. To function through Christ in that priesthood. So, what's the conclusion? In the New Testament, do we tithe in the New Testament? I will answer those questions. First question. Did the tithe cease in the New Testament? Did tithing cease in the New Testament? My answer, not exactly. Now people say, what kind of answer is not exactly? Because I'm a technical person. Not every answer is yes and no. Some is not exactly. <laughs> now why do I say not exactly? 
because Levitical tithing ceased. But the Melchizedek tithing continues. Now, it may all seem the same, but it is not the same. One is to the Levitical order, which ended in Christ. One continues, but it looks like it's the same practice, but from two different sources. That's why I said not exactly. Because one ceases and one continues. And I will suggest to you, um, you know, there's not much I can say. There, there are people in the Old Testament who still operated in the Melchizedek order. A classic example is David. David was a, from the tribe of Judah. He went to the temple. He's not supposed to go. And the shoe bread, which only Levites can touch, he went to touch it and eat. And everybody was watching. He would die. He didn't die. Because David knew how to operate in the order of Melchizedek. That is why he could tell Abiata, give me the effort. I want to inquire of God myself. Because in the order of Melchizedek, you don't let the priest inquire of God from you. You do it yourself. David operated in that system. David operated in that system. So, do we tithe? Yes. But be conscious, it's not the Levitical tithing. It's of the, the order of Melchizedek. Because he still continues in Christ. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Our high priest still receives the tithe of his children. That's first question answered. Second question. Is the tithe the hard, highest standard for giving? No. This one I give definite, not, not exactly. No. The tithe is the minimum standard for the New Testament Christian. It's for babies. You start from the tenth. So in our church, we don't call it, you know, what I'm teaching now, I've known it for probably 35 years. In the beginning years of my church, I used to teach things like this. I haven't taught them for a long time. So in our church, we don't call it tithe. We call it first fruits. Because tithe limits you to tenth. But under the New Testament, tenth is minimum. You must go beyond. So we encourage people, give more than one-tenth. Don't be like a Pharisee, Anis, Kumi, one-tenth. One, two, three, four, five, six, ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, six, six. And some of you, you've put computer calculator on your time. One, one, ten. And then the last three, how do I divide it by 10? It's now a fraction. You don't even know how to divide it. Please. <laughs> you are a Pharisee. Whoa! Whoa. It's not, it's not that. He says your righteousness must exceed that. What you must desire is, Lord, I start with 10%. But I'm believing you next year, I'm going to do 12%. And next year, you know, you know what my desire is? 
My desire is to tithe 90% and live on 10. I'm somewhere halfway on that process. I'm somewhere halfway. Because when you understand who he is, you will not put calculator on your giving. And some of you, when you give your one-tenth, you think you've done something. Hey, I've died. I've died. That's kindergarten. Your righteousness must exceed that. So it's not the highest expression of Christian commitment. If we have to go to the highest, is give all. 100%. When we get to 100%, then we can say, we are now where Jesus wants us to be. So is the tithe the highest standard for giving? No, the tithe is the minimum standard for the New Testament Christian. Number three question, is the New Testament, what is the New Testament standard of giving? In the New Testament, we are free to give all we have to honor God. He or she who has been forgiven much, loves much. When God has done so much for you, you don't put calculator on your giving. Because if God put calculator on it, his blessing, I will bless him three and a half, one quarter. Where's the one quarter blessing? Freely, his grace is abounding. So when we, when we give, we reflect his spirit of freely giving. So whether you call it tithe or first fruit is not important. The important thing is that there is a high priest in heaven whom we must not appear empty-handed when we come to. And we must always bring our offering to him. Number four, where do we take our tithe and offering? Where do we take it? To a church under the stewardship of the genuine ministry gift set by Christ. Now, that is your responsibility. Check your pastor out. If you think he's a crook, advise yourself. Number five. How should the tithes and offerings be used? My answer. For the support of God's work. For church staff for church services and projects, and for Christian charity, giving to the poor. And then the last question I ask, is that how ICGC, but since I'm in CCC, and I know Pastor Ransford 100% well, is that how CCC uses your tithes and offerings? And I'll say, yes. <laughs> yes. If you want to prosper, I have given you the key. Some people will say, well, you know, Bill Gates doesn't tithe and so and so doesn't tithe. Who told you? Everybody ties to something. Do you know what he's giving to? Do you know whom he pays homage to? 
Has he shown you? Because remember the devil says, I give it to whomever. I'm not saying he's giving to the devil. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is, when you are a believer, this is the way. If you are an unbeliever, do it your way. But if you are a child of God and you want to walk by the scriptures, apart from working hard and, and, and being diligent and being uh, a good steward and being faithful in little and being faithful in much, apart from all the things you have to do, you have to be a tither. Not just a 10% tither, but an increasingly progressive tither. Increasingly progressive. So you must come to the point where you say, 2018, I'm trusting God that I'm giving 18%. Because it's 2018. <laughs> then 2019, I'll do 19%. And 2020, I'll do 20%. And 2021, I'll do 21%. Now some of you say, I have to die before the... <laughs> 2099 because it, it's not going to help me. <laughs> God will keep you alive. But that, that simply means increasing your tithing by 1% every year because God has done so much for you. If you prove God in the tithe incrementally, he will prove himself incrementally faithful in your life. We still tithe under the order of Melchizedek. There are principles we can learn from the Levitical order. We can even teach out of it, but consciously, that is not what we are tithing to because that system has been abolished. We are tithing to the order of Melchizedek. If you are here this evening and you are not a tither, I'm going to encourage you Trust the God you, you worship. You trust him with your life. You trust him with everything. Why don't you trust him with your money? Why don't you trust him with your finances? Why don't you say, I'm going to be faithful? And since I started tithing when I was a teenager, I've tithed every, every month. Since I was about 18. Constant. I don't even think, oh, should I? Hey, I've missed three, three months. God understands. God understands. <laughs> he says, when you miss three months and you are coming, then you have to add three months to it. So you have to do six months. That's the, if you go to the Levitical order, grace demands more from us. I want you to commit that permanently I want to settle this question of tithing. I'm just for the rest of my life going to be an incremental tither. I'm going to be incremental. Improve God. I've never seen in my life a tither who has grown incrementally worse off. If there are, I'm yet to meet them. But I've seen poor people, poor widows, who would testify 
that since they tithe, God takes care of them every month. The faithfulness of God is ever sure. Tonight, the only prayer I want you to pray is a prayer of dedication and commitment. That you are committing today to be a faithful, incremental tither. You are not going to break your tithe. You are going to present it under the authority that Christ has established. As Barnabas did, put it under the apostles' feet. It is not going to go to him. If you read the Bible, they took it and distributed it. That's what we do. You receive the money and it's distributed to so many other needs and, and projects. But there has to be a place where it is received and then, then from there it is distributed. Let's rise up. And I just want you to make a vow to God and make a promise to God and make a commitment. Your finances may be bad. Maybe you can't pay your bills, but prove God, trust him. If he is God, let him show himself to be God and say, Lord, from today, I vow I will be an incremental tither. I will grow in grace, in the grace of giving every month, every year. Just lift up your hands to God. And, and come into covenant with him like Abraham did. Come into covenant with God. And say, Lord, I trust you with my finances. I trust you with it. I have needs. I, I have burdens. I trust you with my finances today. I leave it in your hands. And I will do what you say I should do. I trust you, Lord. 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 With my finances, with my money, with my productivity, with my business, with my career. We have to break out of poverty. The church must produce multi billionaires we have to be violent in our giving we have to be purposeful in our giving yes we have to work hard we have to be intentional about our planning we have to be strategic with our mindsets but we cannot ignore the fundamental covenant we have with God lift up your hands if you want to make that covenant with me, if you don't want to, I'm not going to put pressure on you. But if you want to make a covenant with God, just lift up your hands to God and say with me, Heavenly Father, I stand before you today and cut a covenant with you, God most high, that you are my God and Christ Jesus is my high priest. And I serve under a shepherd that you have chosen. I covenant with you, God, that from today, I come into covenant as an incremental tither. I will not fail. I will not exchange. I will not default. And I trust you with my finances that you open the windows of heaven 
and show me favor and grace and abundance on every side from today. Poverty shall never touch me, shall never touch my children. All my children's children, my seed will never suffer. They will never beg for bread. In Jesus' name, I break poverty from my family. In Jesus' name, amen. And celebrate your victory in Christ. Yes! There is a spirit of prosperity over this church. There is a spirit of prosperity over this church. There is a spirit of abundance over this church. In the name of Jesus, receive it. There is opportunity. There is growth. There is acceleration. Amen. In Jesus' name. People will favor you. Amen. People will do you good. Amen. Doors will open to you. Amen. Access will be given to you. Amen. What was difficult will become easy. Amen. From today, you will never lack. Amen. 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 In Jesus' name. Amen. I sense it strongly. And I know it has happened now. In the name of Jesus. Celebrate. Come on, give it a shot.